This is the Australian Hunting Podcast, hunting, shooting and fishing radio on the AHP Digital Radio Network. Visit us at australianhuntingpodcast.com.au. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Here's the host of the show, Jason Selms. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for joining me, the Australian Hunting Podcast, Hunting, Shooting and Fishing Radio. Great to have you with us for another episode. I want to thank all the people that support me on Patreon, as per usual, all the new people that have come on board, and especially all the people uh, also that have been with me since the beginning. I've been able to upgrade some new equipment, which is absolutely fantastic. I've really wanted to sort of increase my workflow for quite a while, and now I'm able to do that. Now I'm able to play audio uh, to and from guests while over the phone. It's just absolutely fantastic. So I want to thank all the people that support me. And if you want to support me on the show for just a, a few dollars a month, this P podcast, probably in 2020, I think, will be going just on nine years, uh, which is absolutely crazy. Can't believe I've been podcasting about hunting and shooting and what's happening uh, in the political arena since 2011. Now, this is part two of an interview I did a few weeks ago with author of a book called Gun Control, What Australia Got Right and Wrong. And his name's Tom Frame. Uh, the reason we followed up with part two, uh, Tom had some previous commitments during our last show, so we had to cut it a little bit short. I know we are going to be a little bit pressed for time as well as he has more commitments, so we're going to try and get as much information uh, in this show as we possibly can. I hope you really enjoyed the last show. Uh, I think it was a great discussion, having you know ideas and testing each other's ideas and things that we were thinking. Uh, so I hope you guys really, really enjoyed that show. This show is going to concentrate on things like uh, self-defense. It's going to talk about privileges and rights to own firearms. It's also going to talk about why shooters were angry and upset in 1996 when they were having their rights taken away from them. We're also going to talk about the CFA, the Shooting Industry Foundation. And we're also going to talk about the... NFA, the National Firearms Agreement for America. Could it possibly work in America? So we're going to discuss those things with Tom Frame. So we're going to bring him onto the show. Tom Frame, welcome back to AHP. Thank you for joining me for part two. It's a pleasure to have you back again on the show. Thank you. I'm looking forward to our chat. Absolutely. I want to talk about, we went through a lot of meat and potatoes of our last show, getting more towards into the book. I want to talk about an interesting one, uh, rights versus privileges. Can you sort of explain what rights versus privileges to own firearm? Now, I've just been, I've been discussing this quite a lot uh, on the show. A privilege under the meaning is a special right, advantage or immunity granted or available only to a particular person or group. Right meaning is a moral or legal entitlement to have or to do something. Now, under the law, if I'm over the age of 18 years, old. I have a right to have a firearms license. There's been many cases throughout, especially over the last few years where the courts uh, or the tribunals have actually ruled for the police to give a person's firearms license back uh, because they suspended it. Perhaps they didn't like the look of the person. Perhaps they were associated with people they didn't like. And uh, what was really telling was that either the court and or the tribunal judges were actually saying it's a right for these people to have their firearms license and were directing the police to give their firearms license back. So give me your I guess, two cents on why you think it's a privilege to own a firearm? Well, the language of rights versus privileges is, a, is an old discussion. And in different legal jurisdictions, people take a different view of the standing of both. I would say that we have generally viewed firearm ownership as a privilege, as a working privilege, because it can be taken away. A right exists irrespective of a whole range of other considerations and maybe the context. If someone says, well, you have a right to life and it's an absolute right, nothing then takes that right, can take that right from you. Whereas with firearms, you have a right to own one until such times 
as you break the law in different ways. And that's in many ways why I say in its working understanding in Australia, we say having a firearm is a privilege because the state can, by virtue of legislation, say we now decide that you can't have it. So it's a right, yes, in that the courts can say to the police, well, you haven't demonstrated this person um, is not uh, a valid person to hold a firearm. But if anyone does anything wrong, as we know, if they commit an act of violence, uh, then their firearm licence is suspended. So that's why, in a working sense, I say the reality in Australia is, I'm not saying it's good or bad, it just it is, the reality is that we regard firearms as a privilege. Now, if you and I see it as a privilege, something that can be taken from us, we are more perhaps likely to respect it. And I think it's a good working principle for shooters to say, we have firearms and we, we, we have them because the law says we can, and that we shouldn't do anything individually or together to make legislators decide that that entitlement that we have, you might even call it a right to have, is not suspended. So I'm using it in a couple of uh, different ways, rights versus privileges, um, but I would want to say that uh, whatever the state says we can do in legislation, if we treat it as a privilege, we're more likely to, I think, uh, honour it and uh, to never put ourselves in a position where it can be taken from us. A lot of people talk about, and this comes back to the Second Amendment as well, and we're talking about that on our previous show, and people say, well, they have a constitutional right, which is true. But don't forget also, too, that constitutional right is not absolute in the fact that if you go to a gun store, you're a known felon, or they do a background check on you, and then they say, well, sorry, sir, you've actually you know, failed our said background check. You, you don't actually get a firearm. So I guess my point being is that is, is the fact that if I'm over a certain age, why are we treating it like a privilege? Why aren't we treating it as a right? I mean, I know we can change the law to say, you know, we can take that you know right or privilege, however you want to call it, off you. But I mean, isn't that the same with all rights? I mean, is it a privilege to drive a motor vehicle? I mean, we're not some special interest group. Anyone over the age of 18, regardless of the colour of their skin, gender, it doesn't matter whatsoever, even remotely about that. If you want to get a firearms licence, you can. I mean, what would be stopping the police? if it's a privilege to come to my house tomorrow and say, Jason, listen, you know, we just don't like the look of you. We don't know like who you're associating with. It's a privilege to have a firearm. We're taking your gun license off you. And then I would say, well, hang on. I haven't done anything wrong. I'm actually a good person. And this has happened many times over the last couple of years. That's why I so say when you're sort of saying privilege, I think you're sort of sort of saying right, but we're going to treat it as a privilege. Am I wrong in saying that? Well, um, the first thing I suppose, as I'm sure many of the listeners understand, is that our constitution says nothing about firearms whatsoever, and so we we don't have a Second Amendment, and we don't have Second Amendment rights in Australia. Um, we don't have amendments like the Americans do in their Bill of Rights, which is a cluster of amendments to the US Constitution. So we can't say in Australia we have a constitutional right to a firearm. We don't. Um, it doesn't. There's no reference to firearms in the Constitution, and we can't claim a right. What the state essentially does, and remember when I say the state, I mean, say, uh, the, the apparatus of government because it's, it varies in Australia. The Commonwealth only has responsibility for importation. The states and the territories manage uh, firearms in their own jurisdictions. Um, the way that it works is it's say, yes, you have a legal entitlement to firearm until you break the law and then you don't. And so essentially, it sounds like, doesn't it? It sounds like a privilege because, yes, you have a right to a firearm. Yes, you have a right to drive a car, but if you offend, we will take from you a license uh, to do that, either own a firearm 
to drive a car. That's how it I works. I get that, but my point is, I guess, I know it's a, a, it's not a guaranteed right because the government can change the laws tomorrow. They can change laws on vehicles. I mean, they can change laws on anything uh, in this country and say, well, we can take that away from you. But under, um, what I'm saying is under the current system, I have a right to have a license. The government just can't come. And I've heard from people all across the country that have either been on this show, spoken to me and said, well, for whatever reason, they didn't like who they were associating with, whatever it may be. They've tried to take their gun license off them and they've failed in actually doing that. And, and, and even the courts, even the tribunal judges saying, well, you know, he has a right to have this license you must give it back to him. You must give it back to him. It's not an inalienable right to, I guess, in the US, because if you're a criminal, that's like saying, well, you know, criminals, if it's a Second Amendment, that means it covers everyone. That means a criminal should be able to go and get a firearm. But we know that's not to be true. Well, certainly in Australia, we, uh, we're a law-based society. And so we have laws. And it's not up to the executive arm of government, like police, to just say, we don't like the look of you. And Without any recourse to anyone, we're going to act against you. That doesn't happen. You can take anyone in Australia, even the Prime Minister. You can take that person to court. You can initiate legal proceedings. Mm. So it is the case that we are managed by the rule of law. And the rule of law is important. It separates, I think, a country like Australia from those countries where it's the law of the jungle. Uh, and therefore, it is right and proper that if the police attempt to do anything, uh, which if you like, is contrary to the law, we can then take legal recourse, we can go to the courts, we can go to the AAT or wherever the proceedings are, and we can say, look, we think someone's exceeded their lawful authority, or in doing what they've done to me, they've acted outside the provisions of law, and therefore we can seek judicial review or judicial turnover, or whatever it might be. I think you're actually agreeing with me here. I think you're agreeing with me. A bit of a backhanded agreement, I think. Am I, am I incorrect? Oh, no, not backhanded. I think, no, there's nothing backhanded at all. I agree with you. But, um, but people have to act within the law, and it doesn't matter who they are. The police have to act within the law. The prime minister has to act within the law. And if they want to change the law, there are processes for doing it. Now, there are some things which are inalienable. In other words, some things in the Constitution that all citizens are assured now, if, for instance, we think that some freedoms of ours are uh, being taken from us by government, we can seek recourse even in the High Court. Um, governments just can't act however they want to act. They have to act within the Constitution, and then they have to act within the legal framework of the state. So it is important, and you and I are agreed, and I hope all the listeners are agreed, that if we have a, if we have a law, the law should be obeyed. If people act, si- act outside the law be they law enforcement or we subject to it, then there has to be a recourse to legal process, fairness, procedural fairness. The police just can't come along and say, we don't like the look of you or who you're associating with. We're going to take your firearms license. We can say, well, I don't agree. I think you've been unfair. I'm going to seek redress and uh, we can pursue that. Um, That's the way that things work in this country. There are some things which will always be ours, assured to us by the constitution that firearms Ownership and firearm use is not one of those things in Australia. The reason a lot of this stuff has been, you know, pushed down shooters' throat that it's a privilege to own a firearm, and I totally agree. If you're a criminal, you shouldn't have access to firearms. I think we can, you know, uh, both agree on that. But under the judicial review, it sounds like you're saying, "Well, I do have a right to have the firearms." No, you're treating it like a privilege, but that was not what I guess you said that that was a privilege in the book. In in essence, you said we're treating it like a privilege, but I think it's a right. And I wanted to play something for you. I, th- I thought you might find this interesting. I only just found this again a couple of weeks ago. I thought uh, I had a soundbite of Samantha Lee. So I just 
wanted to play that now and you can hear what Samantha Lee thinks about it. In Australia, our laws do not allow us to use firearms for self-protection or protection of property. And I think that's trying to find a balance between public safety and the needs of shooters. Uh, in Australia, having a firearm is a right and not a privilege. We have to prove why we want a firearm, and I think that's legitimate. So there you go. You just heard Samantha Lee. She's saying the complete opposite. She says it's a right to own a firearm in this country. Well, within the law, it is a right until you act outside the law and the law then says we are withdrawing from you that right, which I'm saying sounds like uh, and feels like it is a privilege. Um, Now, there's a great deal of literature about how the law distinguishes one from the other and what it can do. Essentially, what it says, you have a right to do something until you act contrary to the law and, and if you like, your right or your entitlement uh, is taken from you. She's also right in saying that um, you don't have a right to a firearm unless, and then the genuine or legitimate reason uh, uh, provision is then provoked. You 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 can't just say, I want one because I want one. Well, you have to give a genuine reason. I think that's not unreasonable. Uh, people might think it is. It doesn't seem that way to me. And I think generally uh, the genuine reason um, specifications are, are not pushed to the extent that you think they might if, if we were if we were really trying to eradicate private firearm ownership. Renowned for their strength, reliability and attention to detail, Moroku shotguns are the perfect example of what a sporting shotgun should be. Moroku have been producing quality products for over a century and sold in Australia since 1963. Each Moroku shotgun is crafted with precision, from the MK Trap and sporting models to the all-round best-selling field shotgun, the MK70. Visit morokushotguns.com.au for more details and stockists. I want to go on to the next one because I thought this was great, actually, what you said. And I agree with you totally about public expenditure and wastage. So I just want to, I want to play something. It was one of your previous interviews, and I thought it was good. I wanted to play that just now. So you do talk a lot in the book about the red tape and reducing it. Why is that the answer? Why does, that, why does reducing red tape ultimately, in your view, lead to making Australians safer? Well, in part because we can take the resources that we invest, or I think to some degree waste, regulating law-abiding shooters and put it into dealing with a gun crime with criminals, with the importation of firearms that never exist, they're not held by licensed shooters and they're not registered, and actually put resources where more and more people are dying, which is domestic violence, of which women are principally the victims. I want to talk about that too, because I found that uh, very interesting, Tom, about government wastage. Now, I wanted to play one just very small excerpt from the show, which I thought was interesting also. So I'll just play that. There's much more adherence to the importance of safety and diligence in the use and storage of firearms, licensing, registration. What's your thoughts on registration in general and the fact of government wastage? Well, I think there's two things I'd say in relation to that. I, I would say, first of all, that the licensing of shooters is significantly more important and uh, more effective than registering individual firearms. So let me make that point. They're not the same thing and they're not on the same plane. If I'm asked about them, I say, yes, I think there should be licensing and yes, there should be registration. But I don't regard them as having equal significance or equal substance in terms of what they deliver to the community. I do think that there is an argument uh, for registration. I mean, I'm aware, we're both aware that some people say it's pointless, um, that what it does is it creates weapons, uh, records of firearms, which make it easier for the wrong people access them to come and steal your firearms. 
Um, I still think there's there's an argument for it that we want to know that firearms are moving around the community so that the firearm that exists is in fact one that is legal. It's not illegal that we've tracked it. If this particular firearm was used in a crime, it may help in crime prevention, crime detection. Um, I'm I'm thinking that it's prudent. Uh, I wouldn't certainly uh, go to the go to the barricades for registration of individual firearms, but I think that given that's what we've done in the past 20 years. We've registered individual firearms. A lot of effort's been put into it. Now, your argument may be that this is a case of, 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 of waste, that it doesn't actually achieve a great deal, and we could talk about that in detail. It's a kind of conversation that would be good to have with both police and with registry officials to find out whether or not it's making much of a difference to much. But certainly, um, what I would say, and what I've said this in an ABC interview, when when I said to someone, "Look, the cost of all of this uh, this administration is borne by the public," and the interviewer said, "Well, who cares?" And I said, "Well, I care. We should all care when governments waste our money. It's our money. It's our taxes. It's been taken from us to regulate this state. If it's not achieving its desired end, then get rid of it. Save the money. Put it into more productive things." So I'm open, uh, Jason, certainly, to a conversation about if we did get rid of registration, what that would mean, what it costs, and looking at, okay, if we redeployed the resources somewhere else, where would be the right place to put it? Australia generally is one of the last countries in the world to have this type of system to register firearms. Back in 2014, uh, long-term serving Prime Minister Stephen Harper abolished firearms registration, said it was wasteful and ineffective and it hadn't saved one single Canadian life. Again, why does Australia just pursue these things? I, look, I think there's a couple of reasons. One of them is, is that, again, there's the legacy of 1996 and the effect of the advocacy of groups like Gun Control Australia that, that has made Australians feel wrongly, in my view, that if you register firearms, it'll make a difference to community safety. Uh, I'm not necessarily persuaded that it will or it won't. I'd still like to hear more about it. I don't think I myself have enough information to make a judgment to say, let's get rid of the whole system. I mean, Canada's made that decision. So hearing them, hearing about their experience, as you say, it's been gone for five years. So after five years, you could do a study. Has it made a difference? If so, what so? I think that's a good thing to do. And we could say, look, Canada did it. There was no reduction in safety. Therefore, we're going to, we're going to do the same thing. Um, I'm open to that. But certainly, I do think that the reason we don't do it is because we've got this idea that somehow we were perilously unsafe before 1996, but we're now incredibly safe after 1996 because of the National Firearms Agreement. And with the narrative that's being pushed up until now by Gun Control Australia, people have believed that. And any step, be it barrel lengths, be it collapsible stocks, the things we talked about last time, there's somehow the notion in the mind of the non-shooting community that any change, any change is going to make us all less safe and they're not wanting to countenance that. And politicians who are afraid of a controversy that won't bring them any votes um, don't take a courageous step and do what the Canadians have done. So you rightly draw attention to the Canadian experience. We should continue to look at it. And if it proves to be an exercise with merit, then, hey, let's have a close look at it.
Would you like to advertise on one of the most tech-savvy mediums on the internet? Then why don't you advertise with us on the Australian Hunting Podcast? If you have a product or business that you would like to promote, then we would love to hear from you. Become one of our partner advertisers by calling Jason on 0425 881 967 or email australianhuntingpodcast at gmail.com. I wanted to, it was very interesting that you brought up on ABC Radio National, one of the benefits of the registration, this was in your second interview, but unfortunately it's been removed from the internet and I couldn't, I couldn't find a copy. I did email them, but apparently once it's gone, it's gone. But you said that fact that, well, we know where the firearms are and that if police attend a domestic dispute, uh, they know who has a firearm on the property. So I guess my first question is if, if I'm a police officer and I get called to a domestic dispute, whether this is at the initial phone call to the police, whether this is after the fact to gather information what would you do in that situation if i'm thinking if i'm a police officer and i attend a domestic dispute and i know a firearms there i would treat the situation with caution if i checked and there was no firearms there i would probably still treat the situation with the same amount of caution so if one of the benefits or the one of the key benefits you said of registration was knowing firearms are on the property i guess my my counter question would be well how many times has a law-abiding firearms owner at the point of the police either coming to their property for a domestic dispute pulled a firearm on the, on, on the police and or shot the police? Um, <laughs> well, again, I think that we both probably know the answer, which is that doesn't tend to happen. Uh, and but that was I'm one of only... your key key reasons for registration. I mean, it's just, I don't, sorry to say it was fanciful. I, I understand what you're trying to say and knowing the firearms there, but what is if a, the person was a criminal and didn't have a gun license but had an, you know, an, an unlawful firearm underneath the sheets under his bed? Why would you treat the situation any different? And would just, even if we saw five you know, people that were killed in that situation, I mean, is that enough to waste billions and billions of dollars that have been wasted since 1996 on, on an issue that is not even happening in the community? Well, the first thing is that I can only go on. I've got a number of my students at the university who are police, and I say to them, look, is this something that helps you? And they will generally nod in that direction. So, again, I didn't make the law, and I don't, I'm not, in one sense, def- I don't have a requirement to defend it other than to say, these are the reasons that have been given for what was initially done and why it might be retained. So, I am told by police who are my students that it is helpful to know that the premises to which they have been called may have a firearm. Will the firearm be used? Will they think it'll be turned against them? We know the answer is that the majority of the vast, vast majority of law-abiding citizens don't do this. But it is an argument, Jason. You, You ought not to hear me incorrectly. It is an argument that is put for the reason for having registration. I'm not putting the... I mean. I'm simply repeating that this is an argument that is put for that, and it's for the matter for the police. If there was a decision that we would get rid of it, it would be something the police would have to do in their advocacy. There'd be probably a Senate inquiry or a state inquiry, upper house inquiry, and the police would be asked, does this make a difference? If not, okay, that's a reason then not to have individual registration. It is an argument that has been put and is put. The cost of the registration the registration of individual firearms, I have not seen a figure put on the cost of that particular component of firearms registration and the work the registry does. So I agree with you, it probably runs to to the millions of dollars. And I would welcome uh, an inquiry, a public inquiry, where the benefits of individual registration of firearms were held against the costs and 
for people to be able to say it makes no difference. That's all I've tried to do in both in this book and my interview is to say, look, why don't we talk about these things? At the moment, they're not talked about in a rational, sane way, and politicians won't uh, host the kind of discussion I think we need to have where we ask, as citizens, the questions you're asking. Um, don't get me wrong that I'm trying to say, oh, let's stick with it because this is a cogent argument. I'm saying that, look, this is the argument that has been put up. I'm willing to see that be uh, be the subject of discussion, like all bits of legislation that are reviewed. The NSA and all the state and territory legislation ought to be reviewed as well. Just wish you'd probably have clarified that during that ABC Radio National interview, because what I heard was you said that was a reason to have registration. I don't think I heard that incorrectly. And when I heard that, I thought that's interesting because, you know, no one that I know of, and I did obviously extensive research trying to find poli- uh, people that have pulled guns on police and or shot police at the point of a domestic dispute. Police will say that it helps them because they generally they don't really like having people having firearms. And, and if we're wasting billions of dollars on something that's wasteful and effective on something that may happen, I just think we should treat all situations the same with the caution that they need when attending a domestic dispute, that's all. Well, I'm sure that's what the police do, that the fact that that, that a premises does not have, or at least it's not known that there are firearms there, I mean, I'm sure the professional prudence of police would dictate to them that they're always careful and that they're always uh, alert to the possibilities. But all I, when you do an interview on the ABC, we have time to talk longer So we're going to talk for over half an hour. An ABC interview traditionally, uh, conventionally runs to eight or nine minutes and you just have to make the points. You don't make the points you choose to because you get asked questions, sometimes not the ones you would either ask or want to answer. And so it is an argument for individual registration. It is an argument. Uh, it's, it's, I think it's not fair to say, oh, if I repeat the argument, therefore I, I support it either uh, generally, or with with um, with strength and enthusiasm, it is an argument for that. I'm I wasn't the one who said, and I'm not the one who's saying. Um, you know, we should have uh, individual registration of firearms because it achieves certain things. I said this is an argument for it. Uh, only an open inquiry, the kind that we haven't had, would we then elicit enough information to say, look. It is an argument, but it's one that people don't use or it doesn't actually have much strength. I just would have liked to have seen that money go to much better things like, you know, finding criminals with firearms, you know, hospitals, roads, things people can actually benefit from. But we'll move on to the next one because I thought this one was interesting too. You talked about in the book, and this is, I guess, throughout several parts in the book that, you know, in 1996, obviously, you know, firearms owners, uh, you know, had their rights taken away from them. You know, at one point calling shooters hotheads, calling them extreme. I mean, didn't, didn't shooters... You know, especially since they didn't do anything wrong, didn't they have a right to be upset? Didn't they have a right to be somewhat angry that their rights were being taken away from them? There was also no mention of what the you know, the fallout of these gun control laws were. Just to name a few, bankruptcy of family businesses, family relationship breaks downs, you know, kids now in broken homes, and most importantly, probably the biggest one, of people that, were, that had committed suicide over this stuff, especially for financial reasons, family and relationship breakdowns, yet no mention of that, just shooters needed to hand in their guns and put up and shut up? Were they supposed to just walk in there with a smile on their face and say, well, here you go, I haven't done anything wrong. If I say anything bad, I'm going to be targeted. If I relate, try and relate to the general community, I'm going to be targeted. What choice did they have? Well, they had the choice that many elected to take, which is they were involved in protest marches and they said publicly that they weren't happy with the Howard government. Um, they had the right to do that. They did that. 
But yeah, but my point I'm not is, sure the point it... that you're making because I accepted that people weren't happy. They expressed their unhappiness at that time. It made no difference. Uh, as it turned out, in polls around the country conducted by polling organisations, they found that the support for the National Firearms Agreement was probably running at 80 plus percent. Politicians were hearing that and they were going to change the law. So shooters could do all the things that they democratically are entitled to do, which is protest, contact their members of parliament, things like that. And it made no difference. And uh, that's the way that it was in 1996. I don't condone it. I was simply describing what was. My point being is the issues that no one even considered back during that time, the businesses that went out of business, as I said, the family breakdowns, the kids in broken homes, the issues that people were having throughout that time, I mean, were just terrible. And it seemed to be no one really cared about them. And there was no mention in the book of that. Oh, no, I, I dispute that. I said that it was unfair and un, uh, and I think just um, unjustified to treat shooters as though they were the criminals. They had some, done something wrong. I did repeat John Howard's own remark that to his own colleagues, he said, I'm going to do something that is against all my interests, which is I'm going to harm people who have done nothing wrong. I, I said all of that, and I would stand by my point that and I've said then, and I've said in an article I wrote in The Australian after the uh, Christchurch yeah, But it wasn't against massacre. his interest, though, Tom. It was against the people's interest because they're the ones that lost the businesses. John Howard still had the guns defending him. John Howard didn't give up his firearms ownership. Not that he had any, but he had his armed security. He, he didn't give up anything. People like me and no, you no, gave no. up everything. No, but what he said was against his political in, interests, instincts, that kind of... In other words... John Howard didn't believe you punish people who've done no wrong. And he accepted, and he even conceded at that time, that he was doing something that law-abiding shooters would not like, and they had not brought it on themselves. I made that point, and he would make that point now. Yep, there was, there was fallout, there was collateral damage on people who'd done nothing wrong, who had not broken the law. And I, and I've, I've, I've said in the book, and I said subsequently, that I think that that was one of the greatest mistakes that was made. The demonising of shooters in 1996 and to some degree since was, was something that could have been avoided, should have been avoided, and it's a black mark against Australia and the, the way that we conducted those affairs in 1996. I guess it always seems, uh, you know, not for thee, but for me in regards to the government. I mean, he didn't give up anything. He didn't give up, you know, certain types of firearms that were protecting him. You know, he, he always said, you know, the gun culture was a disease and that we needed to, you know, maintain our relationship with America. That was paramount. But it's interesting because who will be the first people that we would call uh, uh, to defend us if something happened in this country? It'd be the USA, of course, wouldn't it, to bring their firearms over to help us. That's why they're one of the strongest allies in the world and we have them as an ally because if something happened, they'd be the first people we would call on to help us. Well, uh, we would like with, to with, think with guess what, Tom? Would. Firearms. With firearms. That's the whole point. Well, um, well, not with private firearms, with the, with the firepower of the uh, United States Navy, Army and Air Force. But I would say, and I, this is an aside comment, is that when we did ask them to help us in East Timor in, in 1999, 20 years ago this week, uh, Bill Clinton did not uh, give us the help that we thought we were entitled to. And John Howard made it quite plain to Bill Clinton that he was not happy that they were not supporting us when we had supported them in many situations, their benefit before then. But certainly uh, 
John Howard. It's so had interesting, to, though, though, isn't it? John Howard was so unhappy. So I didn't mean to interrupt. Sorry, but yeah, you know, John Howard was so unhappy that we weren't helping, but yet called the American gun culture a disease and wanted everyone else to give up their rights. But this is why people from America get so upset with the politicians that are trying to push this gun control rhetoric now. I mean, why not lead from the front? Why didn't John Howard lead from the front and said, "I'm going to get rid of these types of firearms from the police and from the people that are defending me"? Why not stand up and say, "I'm going to lead from the front"? But he didn't do that at all. Look, he had to respond to the fact that 35 people were killed in Port Arthur and that that was seen in a certain way by the Australian people. Don't don't hear me trying to defend what he did because I'm not a supporter of the National Firearms Agreement in terms of uh, all of its provisions. I think that something needed to be done in 1996. There was laxity in some of the states. There was inconsistency in the law. So approach an approach was needed. I think, and I've said this in the book, it went way too far that it did harm people who'd done nothing wrong and that it was an intrusion on the lives of individuals that was unnecessary to achieve the objective being sought, which was to stop shooting sprees in public places. So he went too far. My view is, though, that he accepted that there would be some political fallout from this and also his government paid for the buyback. Now, we can argue about the buyback, but it was Commonwealth funds it had to supply it. And then you'll then rightly point out, yes, it was an increase in the Medicare levy that paid for it. So the Commonwealth government didn't have to find new money to fund it. But it was one of those kinds of things that you know I think he could have lost political skin on. As it turned out, he didn't then. I think the coalition did lose political skin in the 1998 Queensland state election, but it didn't federally. Um, and I, the whole point of writing a book about this is I do think that he got things wrong. I've told him that. He and I've talked about this. I don't think you should have done X, Y, and Z. And he kind of listens to my views. Uh, now, that's not going to change the law. What will change the law, I think, is a conversation the kind of which we're having now when we find common ground, and it's from common ground or middle ground that we might see reform of the NFA. The Australian Hunting Podcast is the only hunting, shooting and fishing podcast radio show in Australia. With over 40,000 downloads per month, you are sure to find some information that can help you. If you love hunting, shooting, fishing and a little bit of politics, the Australian Hunting Podcast has you covered. To listen, check us out on iTunes and visit australianhuntingpodcast.com.au. Tom, on, uh, I want to talk about self-defence, page 111 of the book. And uh, it was interesting that you said a different mood prevailed amongst hunters who asserted they had a greater affinity to nature than city dwellers. Notably, neither group tried to argue that restrictions would infringe upon their right to self-defence. Most Australians, including shooters, acknowledged that keeping people safe was a job of the police. Now, you were talking a bit earlier about the police going too far and the government also at the time saying under the NFA that, well, this was to stop mass shootings. Uh, so why did they take away firearms? for self-defence and going on from that too that most shooters acknowledge that keeping people safe was a job of police I don't think the general shooting community think it's the job of the police to keep people safe they're not on my doorstep at every opportunity Uh, as you know you call them they come if I'm being murdered or attacked or raped like we've seen in the past I mean they can't do anything do you agree or disagree with firearms for self-defence and did it go too far well the first proposition is that in Australia uh, and certainly in the 20th century since we became a federated commonwealth Um, It is not for individuals to use lethal force to defend themselves. So in 1996, it wasn't a case of there was a right of self-defence using firearms that was then taken from the citizenry. That's not what occurred. We didn't have that entitlement before, and therefore the NFA didn't extinguish it. On the question of whether or not um, 
we have a right of self-defence. The courts agree we have a right of self-defence. But we don't have the right under the law to use a firearm for self-defence. And generally speaking, most of us in most situations believe that it's for the police to sort out matters uh, of, of, you know, of domestic unrest, um, lest if we get involved ourselves, we take the law into our own hands. That's, that's the phrase that we use. Now, it may be imperfect, but uh, I think most people think that's the job of the police if they need to do it better. Uh, then that's something we communicate to our elected representatives. True, but yeah, are you saying we should we have a right to be able to use firearms for self defence within the home? No, I don't believe we should. So what about people? What about outside the home? Obviously, that's a definite no. Then uh, it most certainly is. I don't think firearms should be used for personal self defence. Um, that's that happens to be the law, and I think there's uh, there's good reasons for having a law that says you and I just can't have our handguns that we might have in our safe in our walk-in road if someone does something to us. Now, it may be that we may be so frightened uh, that people might take them up, but you'll find that when the courts come to make judgments on people's behaviour in that instance, it won't, uh, it won't uh, generally support the action that they took. But the whole idea of the NFA, as you said previously, was to remove or reduce the mass shootings. There was not, no mention of self-defence. That, that went further than, uh, obviously, their own tenure they were planning back in 1996. And, I mean, you know, I, I hear this all the time. I mean, I, I hate to wake up every single you know, couple of weeks and see women being raped and murdered or people being attacked in their home. And I know you said it's a, under the law we can't use a firearm for self-defence, but there's been many cases where people have used a firearm for self-defence and haven't been prosecuted. There was high profile cases like in Melbourne, you know, Jill Maher raped and murdered by a 22-time rapist, Eurydice Dixon. I mean, you're saying these people shouldn't have a right to self-defence? No, no, I'm not saying that. and I've not said that and I would never say that. But, but they're they, now dead. They're they, now dead. They're dead. That's right. But they do not have a legal right to hone a firearm for the purpose of self-defence. And you're saying they shouldn't, have, you just said previously they shouldn't have that right. That's right. I don't believe they should. They have, they have reasonable, um, what the courts would regard as reasonable right of self-defence but having a firearm for that purpose is not one of them. And I'm concerned about people carrying firearms in public places for the purposes of self-defence. I, I haven't had anyone in my family or even my extended family being the subject of public violence. So you might say, well, until you do, you shouldn't speak. But at the moment, I'd have to say in our society, and I think on balance, it's the better approach that we not have an individual right to have a firearm for the purpose of self-defence either within the home or beyond it. I'm sort of blown away because I just can't understand in what reality that someone dead is better than someone or is better than somebody carrying a firearm. It just makes no sense to me what you just said. But what you're saying makes no sense to me. So it's okay they're dead then? Is that what you're saying? No, 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 no. That, How therefore, was she supposed to fight off Adrian Ernest Bailey, who was a 22-time rapist who was in the gym doing steroids? How did she have a chance, Tom? How did she have a chance? I'm very passionate about this sort of stuff, actually. Well, if you want to argue that you and I have a right or anyone has a right to take a firearm anywhere for the purposes of self-defence, then that's something that should be put to the electorate and, and, and if you like, tested in terms of public opinion. I mean, Most people would say that's not something that they want to happen in Australia. We have other methods to try to keep people safe. And that someone is dead is a tragedy. And, and Adrian Bailey is the, is the kind of person that needs to be behind bars. I'm sorry for Jill Ma and her family, but I don't think the solution is for our society to condone private firearm ownership for the purpose of self-defence. 
I'll go on to the NFA for America because I thought this one was very interesting. Now, this is page 125. I will also look at the curious alliance between John Howard and the American political left who have co-opted the NFA as a potential template for gun control in the United States. As you know, a lot of this often gets peddled out. I think it might have even been on the two shows that you want, Ron, on ABC Radio National. People say we have the gold standard of gun laws, yet not one country anywhere in the world has adopted these you know, quote-unquote gold standard gun laws. Do you think this NFA would work in the United States? Uh, no, I don't think it would, and it can't because of the Second Amendment. But my point is no country anywhere has even tabled legislation. I think the only world leader that I've ever heard talk about it previously was one time was uh, Barack Obama talking about, quote unquote, Australia did right. Um, other than that, I've heard no international speakers or guests or really anyone saying it's the gold standard and no one's ever even tabled any, any legislation to push Australian style gun laws. So is this a bit of a, you know, I guess where we think we're sort of Australia thinks they're a world leader sort of in their own mind? Oh, look, I think we probably do. I mean, I, I've uh, when we come to think of firearms legislation, obviously people's attention goes to the United States. And there have been a number of United States leaders, um, both presidents and others, who have said that Australia's got good laws. Um, the Second Amendment doesn't make that possible. Um, the, certainly the Kiwis, and I've spoken to some representatives of the Kiwi government after the events of uh, in the Christchurch uh, mosque shooting, and they've looked at Australia and said, look, that can be a template for what they might do. So across the Tasman, certainly I look very closely at what we've done and some of what they've done has been a model of what happened here in Australia. I tried to exhort them not to make the kind of mistakes that we make. Yeah, I want to go to page 75. You brought up uh, the Shooting Industry Foundation of Australia, CIFA, and CIFA said, as you've quoted them in the book, said CIFA's view is that any move to undermine the firm foundations of our federation, which have underpinned more than a century of political stability and nationhood, is to be questioned, particularly when such a move is suggested to be secretive, special interest group that has never revealed its funding sources or membership. You then went on to say CIFA's concern for the well-being of Commonwealth state relations was, of course, a political cant as well, especially self-serving with its assertion that the Australian state jurisdictions have worked tirelessly to protect the safety and security of their citizens, supported by the exemplary standards of behaviour modelled by Australia's million licensed law-abiding firearms owners. Uh, this was pure rhetoric and that hopefully persuaded no one. CIFA's only positive contribution to the conversation was to support a national integrated digital database of licensed owners and firearms owners. Shoot don't want their national uh, their firearms details on a national register. They don't want their registered firearms on a national register, and they don't want their licenses on a national register. So why was that a good thing for them to recommend? Shooters are very unhappy about this. The shooters don't want a national registry. Uh, they're failing at a state level registries. Why would we want to increase the bureaucracy to a national level? And saying that was actually a good thing they recommended. No, my point was that it was integrated. That's all. In, in other words, that is it was impossible. It was possible. For one state to ask questions of another state and not have databases that are uh, either incompatible or which can't be interrogated by someone outside the jurisdiction. So it was just an access question. My main point about CIFA, and I understand they've heard this point, is that they're a business organisation. They've got commercial interests. It doesn't help a public conversation about matters of public interest where you've got people who are claiming that it's a public interest when behind it, of course, they've got commercial interest. That's why I had a go at CIFA. My understanding is they no longer engage in uh, political donations. 
It's interesting because a lot of shooters, obviously, if you go on their Facebook page especially, are very, very unhappy about any national firearms register, to register firearms. I know they represent business, but there needs to be a separation of law-abiding shooters and business. And, you know, I know shooters aren't very happy about the fact that they don't want some national register because they know the failure that the register have been at the state level. No, well, I don't want one either. But what I do think is that being integrated gives a chance then if people need to do cross-jurisdictional activity that it's possible for that to happen. Um, and at the moment, for instance, we've got issues with the electoral role and how the electoral role, <clears throat> you would think, would be something that the Australian Electoral Commission would look after, but there's some anomalies. So some states just regard uh, themselves as being um, the be-all and end-all and that I do think sometimes in crime prevention and other things, that making it possible for jurisdictions to talk to each other in productive ways. It was the integrated fact that, that the databases exist already and to make them integrated, that was, that was the point that I was making there. On page 119, I guess the last question we'll go into, this was about Shooting Stuff Australia. They make videos on YouTube, as we discussed previously before the show started, they're friends of mine. On page 119, you said, the campaign waged against Samantha Lee in particular has been highly personal and vindictive. A Queensland shooters group called Shooting Stuff Australia produced a mocking video in which a reference was made to Sham Lee from Fun Control Australia. It featured an effigy of a blonde doll of Samantha Lee being blown apart by an Adler shotgun. Going on to the second page, uh, page 120, it said the video was condemned across a number of online forums by shooters who realised the reputational damage it caused. One blogger at the Enough Gun website also wrote, it's as though they are planted to make Australian shooters look completely irresponsible and moronic to the general public. His point required no further elaboration. I guess this was a satire video. When did we become so soft that you know we, we can't even make fun videos anymore? Some people didn't like it, some people People really did like it. Uh, in the book, my main point of concern here was there no uh, opposing opinion. Not everybody hated it, but yet in the book, I don't read anything that says anything positive uh, about that particular issue. Samantha Lee often lies about firearms owners, vilifies. She's now talking about military-style bolt-action firearms. I mean, you know, she's a big girl. No one's actually talking about actually shooting Samantha Lee. So uh, what's your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, that I didn't need to show any balance on the matter because I wasn't trying to say oh, these are good guys or bad guys or anything. My point simply was that when it comes to uh, firearms, when it comes to what looks like inciting people to violence, and that's how she certainly depicted it, shooters played into the hands of their adversary. That's it. And you ask the question, you know, when can we not have a joke? Well, um, I'm all for humour and I'm all for satire and I'm all for showing sometimes the absurdity of parts of our public life. But it played into her hands and the hands of others to say, look at these shooters, they can't be trusted. And, you know, um, the, 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 the satire itself gave the impression that shooters weren't responsible people because they would think that was funny and other people didn't think it was funny. And another gun site said, it's definitely not funny. So my point, but my, this, this is an unknown show. blogger from some website that no one even really goes to. As far as I, I did some research, obviously, no one even there's not many people that even use this forum. As far as I was looking at, not not to hassle the forum by any stretch of the imagination, but I mean, I'm sure there would have been other places to put another comment saying, "Well, yeah, you know, just to provide two sides of the coin and and, and be a little bit balanced in, in in your argument in the book." But I didn't need to be balanced because I wasn't trying to. There was no requirement at that point, Jason, for balance. It was simply to say. Shooters need to be aware that if they think something's funny, but it can be interpreted by someone else as intimidatory, then that, that's it. It doesn't matter that it's unfair. It doesn't matter that it wasn't meant that way. It doesn't matter that it was just fun. 
she was able to, first of all, refer the matter to the police. She was able to get a headline in the ABC. She was able to create the impression that shooters are actually rednecks and that they're irresponsible. Now, I'm sure the guys that did this are not those kinds of people, but by doing that spoof video, it allowed her to make that case. And what I was trying to say is that shooters sometimes don't realise the incendiary nature of some of the things they do if they're wanting to be seen as reasonable people who can uh, put a uh, put a position that is reasonable and that therefore becomes the basis for changing the law. Um, that's all it was, Jason. I didn't need to say, and I don't need to say now, that, oh, well, you know, some people thought it was good and some people thought it was bad. My point simply was that Sam Lee was able to use this to discredit shooters and to say, you can't trust these people. We need stronger laws, not weaker laws. I just, I guess I just don't know why shooters sometimes, this goes for all of us in many different aspects of shooting, why we're magically held up to this massively higher standard than everyone else. I mean, we saw just probably four weeks ago in the city when they were, you know, talking about climate change and they had big blow up dolls of, of Tony Abbott and they're smashing them with baseball bats. I mean, where was the public outrage then? It seems to be an only public outrage only happens when it's actually, we're actually talking about shooters. I guess we're all sick of being vilified to the back of the teeth, you know, from people like Samantha Lee and the lies, and then as soon as something happens and somebody makes a video about her, oh, the big bad shooters, they're really bad. Look at them. Look at what they're doing. I mean, aren't we sick to death of the things that, you know, Samantha Lee keeps saying and lies and deceit and certain types of firearms are rapid fire and, you know, someone has a bit of fun. I think we've lost our sense of humour in this country. Well, are we sick of are we sick of the things that you mentioned? The answer is yes, yes, yes. And I've been on the receiving end personally on the ABC with Simon Chapman, who accused me basically of either being a fool a fraud or a liar. Now, I'm none of those things, and I didn't deserve to be treated in the manner that I was. I didn't deserve to have my position misrepresented. I didn't deserve to be defamed. I didn't deserve the things that happened. But unfortunately, I suppose I have shown in my own experience with this book that, yeah, it's not fair, Jason. It's not right. It's not balanced. It's not um, reasonable. Uh, and that's I guess that's my point, though, based on the video. As you say, it's not it's not fair. Like some people think, I'm not going to make that video. That's up to them, you know, on what they want to do. But you know, it just seems every time shooters look the wrong way, the big bad shooters, and we're and we're all bad people. It's just you know, I mean, we're, I guess we're sick of being vilified, and and you're seeing the negative you know impacts of that now. And you didn't make any videos. You're just a guy talking on ABC Radio National that oh, he's extreme and he's the a mouthpiece for the National Rifle Association. We're not dealing with people, especially people like Samantha. I know she's a lawyer. She's obviously a very, very smart woman. She knows exactly what she's doing. Even though she went to the police, nothing happened because they didn't send that image to her. They didn't send that video to her. They didn't do any of that. Hence the reason why nothing happened. Yeah, look, we're all sick of it. We're all sick of it. No problems whatsoever. And I, I have the sickness of heart of most of our shooting colleagues that we are misrepresented in public in, 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 in deliberate and malignant ways. But being sick of it is one thing. Trying to bring about change trying to get a different attitude towards shooters, trying to get reforms to the NFA. That's the thing that at least I'm trying to do in this book. And however difficult it is and painful at times, and sometimes even personally demeaning, I'm willing to do that because I think that shooters have been treated poorly, are being treated poorly. We deserve much better given the size of the shooting community in Australia. And if it means that you know someone like me cops a bit from both sides, from shooters, and also from Gun Control Australia, I'm willing to put up with that because the bigger question is it's the place of the citizen in our society, and I do think that the state has gone way too far 
in the intrusion in people's lives when it comes to firearm uh, ownership and use. And so there's a rocky road ahead, but I think it's worth traversing because I do think that shooting sports and certainly my um, vocation as a farmer, we do need to have firearms and I wouldn't want to see certainly any extension of the NFA. I think it can be sensibly reformed and that's certainly my main priority. Last question, just a very quick one, because I know you've got to go, your time's very pressed. It gets back to the last one as well about the public image of shooters. I mean, I guess when you wrote the book, did you consider both sides of the argument and perhaps the negative public image of shooters that the book may portray by people might reading it in the space of me speaking to you a couple of weeks ago? I decided to go and read the book again because I wanted to get a feel for it. Perhaps, you know, was I being too harsh? Was I feeling... By the end of the book, even for the third time, I, the only way I could feel was like I needed to sort of apologise for my gun ownership. I mean, I don't want to have to apologise for my gun ownership. That's how I felt at the end of the at the end of the book. And did you consider the perhaps the text in the book that it may be eventually a a negative public image for shooters? Um, no, because I took the view that you know there are some things that shooters have said and done which are not in the best interest of shooters. But I tried to say I am a shooter, and I'm a law-abiding shooter, and I'm a shooter who's not afraid to tell people in any company that I'm a shooter. And I think that I, at the same time, made the point that the Greens Party, uh, that um, Gun Control Australia, were people who were not telling the truth, who were exaggerating, who were creating fear. You read the book as a shooter, and there are some things about shooters that I might have said to which you take exception. I know there are people on the other side who have also taken exception about the way in which I have portrayed them. There have been people living in cities that say, you know, you think people in the cities are either ignorant or don't understand what happens in the countryside. And I said, I absolutely said that and meant that. Um, so I am always aware that if you're going to have uh, a participation in a subject as controversial and as a, and as a motive as firearms in our community, uh, then there will be people who read the book and say, you're against us. The irony is that... Um, Simon Chapman thinks that I'm, you know, uh, a stooge for the NRA. You might read the book as a shooter and say, well, I'm really just a patsy for Gun Control Australia. Um, what I'm trying to say is that somewhere in the middle, somewhere in a point of reason, somewhere in a point of, we, you know, we kind of accept that this debate has not been conducted well. There is a place from which people can say, let's look at this agreement. Let's look at what's possible for change. And I do hope, and I and I know, and you know that most, the vast majority of sporting shooters, hunters, uh, and farmers, all are law-abiding citizens. That eventually, eventually, um, that message might get through. Some people, of course, will never hear that message, and uh, you say, okay, fine, that's what happens in a society such as ours. But we can continue to try, and that's what I'm wanting to do. I guess you got caught in the middle. You guess you're gonna you're copying it from the the anti-gun people, and probably gonna cop it from shooters. I'm not sure how many have you know read the book yet, but um, Tom, thanks for coming onto the show for part two. Uh, he's the author of Gun Control: What Australia Got Right and Wrong. So, Tom, thanks for coming on the show. I really, really appreciate it, and uh, hope to catch up soon. I've enjoyed speaking with you. Thanks, Jason. You've been listening to an episode of the Australian Hunting Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. See you next time.